to present the gospel message. So to recap where we are in the beginning, first he talks about the wrath of God. He talks about how people, by nature, that we are rebellious against God. That instead of worshiping God for who he is, seeing clearly that he's the creator of the universe, that instead of worshiping him, that we rather suppress that truth and worship man-made idols anywhere from man-made statues, man-made gods, to man-made successes, man-made philosophies, and ways of thought, worshiping those things rather than the living, true God. And the way that God, the way that he reveals his wrath against us is he lets us be. He lets us worship these idols and be so much dissatisfied in those things. He lets humankind be in their evilness, in their wickedness. And so what was once natural to worship God, to love him, to find satisfaction in him, that becomes unnatural. It is very unnatural for us to worship the Lord, to read scripture. It's very difficult. And vice versa, what should be unnatural, such as evil, wickedness, even unnatural relations, those feel so natural to us. And so you can see how our sin has distorted the current state of affairs, the way that God had intended man to live. And so as a result, his wrath is being stored up against us. And now as Paul is writing this letter, if the Jewish Christians, as they're hearing this, they're much in agreement. They're saying, yes, those Gentiles, those peoples who don't know God, those peoples who don't have God's word, they do deserve God's wrath. But we, we have God's word. We are God's chosen people. We are God's loved ones. And Paul writes, actually, you, you are far worse because you practice the very same things that the Gentiles do. You likewise are filled with evil and wickedness and malice. And he says that, you know what? Even worse, you guys even have God's word, and yet you still rebel against God. So you guys are far worse than the Gentiles. And that's what Paul does in chapter 2, pretty much saying, your religion your church attendance, no matter how good you can conjure up, those things will not save you. So not only does your bad works condemn you, your good works even can condemn you in your pride. So he equalizes the playing field, Jew and Gentile alike. We are all in sin. And so he makes that summary statement in our chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. If you see, he writes and concludes, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, so now that he's established this, now what Paul is doing now in our passage, now he's going to start talking about how serious, just how pervasive sin is. Now, he wants to bring it home where, where we don't think that sin is just some minor issue that we can deal with 
easily, nor is it some kind of phenomenon out there, things that we see on the news. But he wants to really get at what is this sin? How powerful is it? How pervasive and how serious is this sin problem that you and I have? This is where we get the doctrine, uh, what we call total depravity in these uh, passage, in these verses. And perhaps some of us were very familiar with that term, total depravity, thinking that it's in some sense talking about how all the world is messed up, that every single person, no one is perfect. Everyone has some kind of wickedness in them, that we all perform acts of sin in one fashion or another. That's the reason why we, we lock our doors at night. We know of this thing called total depravity. And I guess it depends on which part of the country that you're from, but it really does affect how you view the rest of the world, how you view other people, how bad people can really get. Alistair Begg, uh, he's a Scottish pastor, and he confesses that where he's from, uh, coming from the UK, that people uh, tend to be more pessimistic, more honest on how evil people really can get. Uh, he once shared about a couple living in Liverpool, England, uh, and who had, they had their car stolen uh, from in front of their home one night. And a few days later, this couple, they woke up, and they found their car rightfully returned right in front of their house. And not only was their car returned, they went to the car, it was cleaned, it was washed, it even had a full tank of gas, and they looked inside the car, and inside the front seat there was a note apologizing for the inconvenience that they were caused. And so they began to think, wow, there is still good in this world. And not only was there a sorry note, but next to the note it said uh, there were these two theater tickets. And the note said, please, because of the inconvenience, please go to this show, this popular show that's playing tonight. So the couple saying, you know what? The world isn't too bad. There's still some good left in the world. So they took those two tickets. They went to that night's show to find out that very night the same people broke into their house and stole all of their belongings, which goes to show, no, the world is messed up. There is much evil in the world. And when there are times when you think that there is a slight hint of goodness left, we're all too reminded, no, there's still so much evil present in all of us in the rest of this world. And so maybe that's what we think of when we think of this term, total depravity. But what I want us to do today in our passage is to really get at what this means. And it's not just this simple idea that everyone is messed up, even though that's part of it. But I want us to use this passage to go into the depths of what this really means. What does it really mean for us to be totally depraved? And so we're going to do that in three headings today. We're going to talk about sin and total depravity. The first point, it's depths. It's depths. The second heading, it's deception. It's deception. And third, and finally, it's detection. How we detect the total depravity that we have inside. So it's depths, it's deception, and finally, it's detection. So with that introduction, let's bow our heads one more time and ask God uh, for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that tells us about this doctrine of total depravity. We pray, Lord, that we don't gloss over it lightly, 
We don't take it lightly to, to see and think of how this sin has pervaded all of us, but help us to be soberly reverent, to have this posture of humility as we learn about this doctrine of total depravity. Give us your Holy Spirit that we may understand your word that much more clearly. We ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to focus more from verses 9 onwards. If you look in verse 9, as I mentioned, Paul gives a summary statement that everyone is under sin, both Jew and Gentile. And what's going on in verse 10, if you look, he's giving scriptural proof. He's citing Old Testament passages why it is so, why people are under sin. And not only is he giving proof to his claim, he's giving us a deeper insight what this means. What does it mean for you and I to be under sin, to be under the power of sin? And what he's getting at is, is that sin, it's not merely acts. They're not acts. They're not just merely mistakes that you and I make, acts of error. But rather, sin and total depravity, it's a power, a power that has affected us in our core, at its core. And it's affected us in our entire being. And he wants to make that clear distinction. Sin is not simply just mistakes and acts of wrongdoing that you and I do. But sin is a pervasive power that has affected the very depths of our being. If you're walking down the street, for example, and somebody approaches you in a very angry fashion and accuses you and says, you're a sinner, what would you instinctively do? You'll first think, you'll go through your mind and, and think, what did I do wrong? What have I done? What crime have I committed? And if you can't think of anything you've done wrong, you're going to get offended, right? You're going to say, how dare you call me a sinner? I haven't done anything wrong. Or perhaps if you did do something wrong recently, you're going to be very much ashamed. You're going to have much guilt. And I think that quick story, it kind of illustrates how a lot of us, all of, a lot of us think that when we define sin, we think of sin as something we've done wrong. We define it as an action. What have you committed? What have you done wrong? And that is sin. But rather, what Paul is drawing out for us is that sin is not merely defined as the things that you do wrong. They're not just simply acts of error. But sin is a power, a power that affects every part of you, not only your actions, but every thought, every emotion, every uh, natural inclination that you have. That it is far more pervasive than we make it out to be. And all to say that we have this notion that you and I, that we are these innocent people, generally good, and from time to time we make mistakes, and that mistake is called sin. You say, you know, I'm not that bad, I know I'm not perfect, and I do make mistakes, sometimes I do sin. But that's not the picture that we're supposed to see. By nature, we're supposed to see ourselves totally depraved, in utter sin, under its power. Do you see that the way that Paul writes, he doesn't say that you and I, we commit acts of sin. He says, you and I, we are under sin. 
Meaning, we are under its power. It has affected every aspect of us. He's saying that you and I, in the depths of who we are, everything that is us, we are affected by sin. And we're not to just label certain things that we do as sin, but we are to take ownership and say, everything that I am is sin. Do you see the distinction that he's making? And it's an important distinction. Sin is everything that we do, everything we think and say, everything. And we have to affirm the fact that we are utterly in sin. The core being of who we are. And he shows this in verses 10 through 18. Look at verse 11. He writes, no one understands God. He's saying that our minds are affected, that we can't understand God for who he is, that no one seeks God, that our motives, our volitions, they're not God-seeking. We don't want to find God. We'd rather be satisfied apart from him. Verse 12, he writes, everyone has turned aside. Sin has affected our wills and our desires to the point that we don't want to worship God. We don't want to read scripture. We don't want to pray. We have to fight every inch of our being. Why? Because sin has affected us that deeply. Verses 13 through 14, our throats are an open grave and our tongues deceive. It tells us how sinful our words are. Every word that we say, full of deceit, slander, bitterness, self-centeredness, It's not a coincidence that you and I make mistakes and slip up here and there with our words. No, it's reflecting just how sinful our hearts are. Verse 15, our feet are swift to shed blood, which shows us how evil our actions are towards others. And finally, he says, there's no fear of God. Our faith is even affected. Our posture towards God is even affected. And this serves as an impetus impetus for why we're sinful in all of these aspects. But do you see the caricature that Paul is drawing for us? Our minds, our words, our actions, our emotions, our inclination towards God, everything about us is in sin. And it's not just simply minor acts of mistakes that we cause, but everything about us a lot of the times when we get caught for committing some sin or doing some crime, oftentimes we use the language as, you know, the devil made me do it, right? And it's not the first time that we heard that. Adam said, the women whom you gave me made me do this. And Eve, in turn, says, the serpent made me do this. And that reveals man's tendency to take the blame and give it to someone else that we don't want to take ownership of how sinful we are. We rather put the attention to something else. And we even do that in the language that we use when we talk about our mistakes. Don't you and I say things, I'm sorry for the actions that I've done. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused you. 
but those actions don't define me. They don't represent who I am. And do you see how even in that language, we're separating ourselves from those acts of sin, wherein Scripture tells us, no, you have to take full ownership. Those actions, those words, those thoughts, they pretty much do define and reflect who you truly are. Our baseline view of ourselves is not to be this innocent, neutral people who time to time mess up in our acts of sin. But everything we do is in some way affected by sin. And that's what total depravity means. And let me ask you, when you do think of your sins... Think of the mistakes that you've made or the hurt that you've caused others. A lot of the times, do you explain away your sins? Analyzing them, concluding, you know, I acted in that way because I was tired and cranky. That's why I snapped at that person. Or my mind is filled with impure thoughts because of the things that I've seen. Or I'm acting in this way. Or I'm not doing well with God because I didn't do my quiet time this morning. And that's not too different from the words, the devil made me do it. Because what we're saying is, my lack of sleep made me act this way. That situation at work made me act this way. This person is making me act this way. But in reality is, you are acting that way because you are sinful. It is an expression of who you are. And no such thing can create sin in you, but simply reveal the sins that you and I have inside at its core. Every faculty of mind, every emotion of the heart, our whole being, a commentator, he writes, for the problem with people is not just that they commit sins, their problem is they are enslaved to sin. And this is how we need to see sin, not just as specific acts, but ultimately as this reigning power that has control over us. And they are manifested in the acts that we see, but it's a deeper problem than we make it out to be. I don't have to do much to convince all of you about the reality of sin in the world today from the horrific acts of, of terrorism, one too many acts of shootings in our nation. And we're right to condemn such acts because those acts are acts of evil. They are acts of sin. But it's only the Bible that's going to take it a step further and challenge us with the sobering reality that the source of such acts the reason why such acts happen is not because a lack of government policy or because of those situations, but the true source of the evil that we see in the world today is sin. The problem that you and I have. And the same root cause of the things that we see on the news is the same root cause of why we can't pray. Why we can't love God with all of our hearts. Why we can't be patient with our loved ones. All acts of sin we see in the world share the same root cause that you and I have. And it's only the Bible that's brutally honest to say 
that the reason why we see so many acts of evil and wickedness in the world today is because you and I, we are under sin's devastating power. And the solution is the heart needs to be transformed. Perhaps you heard of the story when they asked all the world's leading thinkers this question. What is wrong with the world today? And it was G.K. Chesterton, a Christian English writer who responded with a postcard simply saying, Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Total depravity teaches us that when we do see things on the news such as, such as Florida, acts of terrorism, injustice against minorities, that our reaction is not to simply demonize people and condemn those acts, even though they are right. But the truth is, the root cause for all the evils that you and I see in the world is the same reason why you and I sin against our neighbor every day. They and us alike, we are affected by this sin's power. And it teaches us that if it wasn't for God's grace, keeping your sin at bay, that we are no different from those people that we see on TV. What Scripture teaches us is that all of us, every Jew, every Greek, we are under sin's power. There's not much difference between those criminals, those terrorists we see on the news with the person that stares right back at you in the mirror every morning. Do you have the view that Paul has when he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what the biblical doctrine of depravity teaches us. And it's that sobering truth that makes us fall on our knees the moment we hear such news as Florida, as we hear such devastating things. It reminds us of the prevalence of sin in our lives, and it makes us ask God, God, forgive us. Give us mercy. This is where we have come to because we have chosen wickedness rather than you. And it leads us to genuine repentance. It doesn't just simply leave us condemning this act and that act, thinking that we are better, but it makes us be on the same playing field because all of us are affected by this power of sin. And once you realize how powerful and how pervasive this sin is, you're going to have a radically different view towards it. Sin, they're not simply nuisances. They're not simple mistakes that you and I make, but it's something so much more powerful that is affecting you and I. And that we have to wage war against it. John Owen, he once said, it is evident that you contend against sin merely because of how it troubles you. You know what he's saying? He's saying the seriousness, seriousness, to which we think of sin, we just think of sin as something that troubles us, something that disrupts our lives, something that messes up our relationship with God. And as true as that is, he's saying, no, it is far deeper than that. Sin is out to kill you. Sin is out to destroy your relationship with the living God forever. 
It's not just a nuisance. It's not just a simple mistake. It's not just something that we have to pray every week so that we're good with God. It's out, and it is a power. And as a result, we must hate sin. J.C. Riles, he says, the true Christian hates sin. He flees from it, fights against it, considers it its greatest plague. He resents the burden of its presence. He mourns when he falls under its influence, and he longs to be completely delivered from it. Sin no longer pleases him, nor is it even a matter of indifference to him. It has become a horrible thing he hates. And if we don't have that response to the sin that we see out there and in our own lives, we don't have an accurate view of sin. So how do we respond? One commentator notes that before we try to change our actions, change our behavior, we have to start with something far much deeper than that. Namely, the stance in which we approach God. The stance in which we approach repentance. He says we have to remember that genuine repentance is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin. It's fundamentally your attitude towards sin. And the challenge that I'm raising for us is, what is your attitude towards sin? Is that where your hate is directed? Is it just simply frustration with yourself? Or is there an abhority against sin? Do we defend it? Do we excuse it? Do we separate ourselves from it? That's the depths of sin. Second point, total depravity and its deception, how it deceives us. We'll continue on in our passage, and verse 19 goes on to speak of a day when you and I, we're all going to be in front of the Lord one day, and we're going to see all of our thoughts all of our actions presented before the whole world to see. And when we see the extent of how sin affects us, he says that our mouths will be closed. We won't have anything to say. We'll have no other defense other than to admit, yes, those thoughts were mine. Those actions, I've done them. Those feelings of bitterness and contempt against others, against God, yes, they were mine. And the list will go on and on of just how depraved we are. But the deception, the danger of sin is, until that day comes, what you and I, what we naturally tend to do is we try to justify ourselves. We try to lessen the severity of this sin problem. Why? Because we want to be accepted in God's sight. And until that final day comes, we're going to do whatever we can, whatever works we can conjure up to justify ourselves, to make ourselves look and feel a little bit better, to diminish the effect of sin in our lives. And to that, Paul responds in verse 20. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul, he writes about the depths of sin, how serious it is. And right afterwards, he reminds us, remember, your works cannot save you. No matter what you do, you cannot lessen just how bad this sin problem is. 
Because he knows that we have this tendency to justify ourselves by the works that you and I can provide and present to God. And that's the deception. It's a problem that we think we can fix by changing our behavior, trying harder not to commit that act of sin, trying to conjure up our strength and present whatever kinds of good works we can conjure up. And what it does is it ignores the fact that sin, it affects everything you do. Even the very good that you try to present to God Sin makes you filled with self-centered motives, thinking about how this affects you, thinking about the good works that you do and how it changes you, puts you in a better light. And everything we do is affected by sin. And he tells us you cannot work it all because that's our natural response. You know, I think a lot of us, we'll go as far and we're sensible to say that you and I, we're not perfect. I think all of us will agree with that. We all have our flaws. But at the same time, I think a lot of us, we think we're not as bad as certain people. We're not as bad as those people on the news. But do you know what that reveals? It reveals that you are operating on this system of good work. Because how are you distinguishing yourself from them? Because they do bad things. And I don't do those bad things. What does that expose? That you are operating on a system of good and bad works. And the way that you compare yourself with those people we see on the news, with the people that we live with, is from what they do and what we don't do, what we do and what they don't do. And it tells us that we're operating, we naturally work like this. This is how we operate. We look at our lives. We don't commit such crimes. We pay our taxes. We are civil towards the people around us. We go to church. We make donations to charitable causes. We work hard. We support our families. And do you see that reveals that you and I, we operate this way. We try to justify ourselves because we think that's going to lessen the truth that you and I, we are deeply in sin as much as the person we see on the news. That's total depravity. We think what separates me from the person next to me is by what he does and what he doesn't do and by what I do and what I don't do. And that's verse 20, justifying ourselves with good works in front of God, hard work, peaceful households, diligence, being model citizens, my involvement at church, all of these good works that we can present before us, we hope that they somehow can diminish the severity of our sinful natures. But George Whitfield, an 18th century preacher, he once said that we have to be sick not only of our sins, but we have to be sick of our righteousness. He says our righteousness is the last idol that we must give up, thinking that that righteous act that you are doing somehow lessens how sinful we are. If you remember Shakespeare's play, uh, Macbeth, if you remember the story, Lady Macbeth, she urges her husband to kill the king of Scotland to usurp his throne. 
And eventually her guilt drives her insane, where she's found sleepwalking all throughout the castle in the middle of the night. And all the workers and servants, they see her rubbing her hands, and she says, come out, damned spot. Out, I command you. And she goes on trying to convince herself that there were no witnesses to the murder, no evidence. She says, why should we be scared when no one can lay the guilt upon us? But still in her eyes, she sees the stain of blood on her hands. And she says, here's the smell of the blood still. Even all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten these hands. And do you know what that entails? Do you know what that describes? It describes that no matter how hard you wipe away this sin problem that you and I have, you cannot get rid of this damned spot because it's not a matter of what you can do because it's affected everything about you. No works of righteousness can remove the blemish, our hope, our security, and our confidence in the moral lies that we live, the kind of lies that set us apart from those evil people out there, All of that reveals that you and I, we have bought into this deception that we can justify ourselves. We can lessen the severity of our sin. We have to be reminded, all of us, we are affected by the same poisonous sin. Sin is something as defined that has plagued all of us at its core, not just something we can wipe away not some act we can cover up. Jeremiah chapter 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. All of us have the guilt of sin on our hands from the slightest offense to God to the most blasphemous thought against him, from the quickest passing lustful thought in your mind to the most adulterous affair, from the bitter thoughts you might harbor against someone to even the most heinous of murders. Every one of us, we're accused and we're guilty, but we try to wipe off the guilt with our hands. And each wipe is an act of righteousness, an extra offering to the church basket, an extra act of service to somebody. But none of that can take away the damned spot. Why? Because the spot of sin is something we can't just cover up with our acts of righteousness. It's something that has affected us too deeply at our cores. And what's needed is genuine repentance. Final point, total depravity and its detection. How we detect the seriousness of our sins. Now, I understand that the past three chapters have been a pretty heavy time for us, studying about God's wrath and God's sin time and time after again. And believe me, it's coming. Uh, Next week, we're going to start getting into God's grace, uh, God's justification, But here, even at the end of our passage, we can see God's grace displayed. If you look at the end of verse 20, we're told that it is through the law, through the law of God's word, his scripture comes knowledge of sin. It is through God's word that we are come to be made aware of this sin problem that you and I have. 
And I know these past messages, they weren't the easiest messages to swallow. Talking about God's wrath, talking about how our bad works, even our good works, separate us from God. And now we're talking about how deeply sin has pervaded the depths of our beings. And you might be thinking, you know what, I get it, all right, I'm messed up. Let's move on. Let's, let's go to the grace aspect. Let's talk, to the good, let's talk about the good news. And if that's the response that you might have, perhaps it's a sign. A sign that suggests you haven't fully understood the depths of your sins. You know, Luther says that the law, God's word, is to show the depravity of our sins. Why? So that we may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And if that's not the posture we have from reading these passages, we aren't ready to move on to God's grace. If you aren't truly humbled, terrified just how sinful you are, bruised and broken, until we grasp the fullness of God's truth regarding this sin, we're not ready to receive the fullness of God's grace. And it is a hard pill to swallow. And we naturally resist such passages because it offends us. And we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to explain ourselves. But what's important here is not the offense of these words. But what's important is the truth of it. Is it true? Is it true, brothers and sisters, that you and I have this sickness called sin and it's out to destroy you and it's out to cut your relationship off from God? Is it God's word that drives you to your knees? Or when you and I, when we do ask God for forgiveness, are we just sorry for the consequences that our sin has caused? What drives you to your knees? Seeking God's repentance. Is it because you got in a fight with somebody? Is that what's driving you to your knees? Is it because you feel bad? Is it emotion that drives you to your knees? Or is it because your life isn't going well because of sin that drives you to your knees? Or is it God's word that says you are sinful that drives you to your knees and therefore you are humbled and broken and in despair and asking for God's grace? It is God's word through his word comes the knowledge of sin. And our posture towards his word just reveals how we view the sin in our lives. Do you see it as a nuisance, just a troubled thing? Or do you see it as a devastating power? And that's the question. Is it true? Am I like this? Am I far worse than I think I am? Do my eyes confirm it? I look at my life and I see this, that this is true. We must not minimize the severity of this truth. And we have to deal with this sin problem. And we can't live our lives just assuming that we just have these mistakes, that we're just going to settle with these sins in our lives. And when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be okay. We must take sin seriously because it's out to get you. I want to end with this anecdote. And it's a story about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. And some of you guys know he passed uh, from pancreatic cancer. 
And if you know, pancreatic cancer is a very deadly cancer. Most patients, they actually um, end their lives uh, within the first year. But fortunately uh, for Mr. Jobs, uh, he had a rare form of this cancer, and it was actually treatable through surgery. But nevertheless, Steve Jobs, he refused to undergo surgery, and his biographer, he quotes him saying, I really didn't want them to open up my body. So I tried to see if a few other things could work. So instead of getting surgery, he went on a strict, strict vegan diet. He had a lot of carrot juices. He drank a lot of those. He tried acupuncture, herbal remedies. He went to a psychic. He went to healing clinics. He did hydrotherapy and so forth. And when people asked his close friends how such a smart man could do such a stupid thing, they said, you know, I think Steve... He has such a strong desire for the world to be a certain way that he wills it to be that way. And ironically, that was his genius. Having such a strong will to see something come to fruition, that's what drove him, and that's what led him to make so many great inventions. But at the end of the day, that's what caused him his life. Because he wanted so badly to be true that these secondary things could heal him. And he thought that if he willed it, if he believed in it, that he could make it okay. Not once did he consider how true is this diagnosis. How severe is it? And it wasn't until nine months later he finally gave in to his friend's wishes. He got the operation, but it was too late. The cancer had spread. And do you see the similarity? When you hear passages like this that says, no, brother, no, sister, you are far worse than you think you are. And you need to stop. And you need to ask God, God, how messed up am I? And not be so concerned of how much it hurts or how offensive it is, but be concerned with, is it true? Is there a diagnosis that there is this powerful force called sin that is out to get you every day of your lives to break your relationship off from God, spreading you with lies? Is it true? And if you can truly accept that it's true, that's when you're willing to receive the cure and the remedy of the gospel. Perhaps that's why maybe your spiritual relationship with God has been sour lately. Because you've been taking this medicine, but you don't know what the medicine is for. It's only the truth of God's word that's going to tell us how messed up we are. But that same truth of God's word is going to bring us the sweetness of God's grace. That is coming, brothers and sisters. The gospel says that you can try to wipe away all you want, but you'll never get rid of the blood of your sin from your hands. And what you need is to come face to face with your sin and then afterwards come face to face with Jesus Christ who's come to cleanse your sin away. If you're willing to confess, yes, I am far worse than I think I am. Sin has affected every part of me. Confess to him. And receive his forgiveness. 
because it's precisely because Jesus knew how utterly depraved you are, because he knows the depths of your sin, because he knows how evil we can be, that he came to earth to take upon the fullness of our sins and the fullness of God's wrath on that cross. And that's the cure. Not our good works. Not the good things we can do and we compare ourselves with others. But genuine repentance, saying, God, all this, all this malice, all this wickedness, that is me. I need your forgiveness. Only then can the gospel be power in your life. Let's pray.